From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Today's episode is the second part of my conversation with Father David Collins, SJ, about his fabulous new book, The Jesuits in the United States, A Concise History. If you didn't hear the first part of the interview, you might want to go back to last week's episode and catch up. On today's show, we focus mostly on American Jesuit history from the 20th and 21st centuries. Father Collins is an associate professor in the Department of History at Georgetown University, where he's also the Hobb Director of Catholic Studies. Don't forget to subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Father David Collins, welcome back to AMDG, part two of our conversation on Jesuit history in the United States. Uh, so the last time we spoke, uh, the last episode, uh, was kind of about colonial times up through um, the 1830s, 40s or so. Uh, we kind of finished last time talking about the Jesuit slaveholding and, and the sale of uh, 272 enslaved um, human beings uh, and reflecting on, on that time. And uh, one of the things you said in, your con- in our conversation was that the 19th century was something you had to learn from scratch when teaching these courses you've taught and writing this, this book. And um, the, the Jesuit history in the, the 19th century was an interesting one that I didn't know anything about either and, and learned a lot from the book. So maybe you could bring us into some of those movements at what's happening. There are Jesuits arriving here while also some Jesuits growing up in the, in the United States and American Jesuits. There are Jesuits coming from other places still and kind of scattering around all around um, the continental U.S. and into Alaska even. So, um, yeah, who, who were they? Where were they coming from? Why were they arriving here? Sure. So um, it really one of the things that um, was most striking for me uh, in uh, investigating the 19th century was uh, how um, – what. One of the most important characteristic of the majority of Jesuits um, through the 19th century is that they are refugees from religious and political persecution in Europe. Hmm. And really, the key word here is refugees, not migrants, you know, looking for greater economic opportunity, um, but really refugees, many of them um, driven out of their hometowns, um, you know, at, at Bannett Point and precisely for being uh, Catholic clergy and Jesuit priests. And here's, it's the irony of the Restoration um, in 1814, which we discussed a little bit last time. And while that decree of the Pope in 1814 that restored the Society of Jesus into existence universally was, um, while it was valid in canon law, what you had across Europe were Governments now very different governments from you know the pre-French Revolutionary time, but other gov- new governments that for slightly different reasons were also hostile to the Society of Jesus. Um, they were um, uh, they saw um, really Catholicism in general, the papacy, and then the Jesuits in particular as representative of um, the, the old order, precisely what the French Revolution and Napoleon were supposed to have, have, have wiped out of Europe. Um, the worst representation of how they still existed was the Society of Jesus. So as Jesuit, as young men began really in some places flocking to enter the Jesuit novitiate, um, governments across Europe began banning them. 
and um, it, it it will happen in in Belgium. It happens in France. It happens in Germany. It happens in Italy. It will happen multiple times in these countries. Uh, Jesuits will be forced to leave their country, and then the question is, well, where do you go? Um, so there's some movement of Jesuits um, to other countries, um, and but there's then also um, a move off the European continent to other places around the world. And one of the huge beneficiaries in terms of numbers received is the United States. So that really that even begins with um, the Belgian uh, Jesuits, uh, the the the. The Netherlandish um, king bans the Society of Jesus. There's a possibility that they um, go to a novitiate in Switzerland. But looking at the Swiss situation, um, there seems to be a high likelihood that in a, in a short period of time, the Jesuits will also be kicked out of Switzerland. So uh, a group of uh, novices crosses the Atlantic um, and winds up first in Maryland, but then uh, goes to St. Louis. Um, those Jesuits in St. Louis are going to found what you know first called the Missouri Mission, and then the the Missouri uh, Province, and that St. Louis becomes the hub for Jesuit or hub or, or launching pad for Jesuit activities up and down the Mississippi and Ohio uh, valleys and Missouri Valley. Um, uh, and how how do how are they moving? Well, uh, they they're often enough invited into places to found schools um, uh, and or to found a parish. Um, they're invited by the local bishops. Sometimes they're um, going into areas and sort of founding Catholicism in that region um, uh, by out of scratch. Um, and then there's this same interest, this intrigue in evangelizing the uh, evangelizing the native populations. And, and the most famous name associated out of St. Louis and in this moment will be Pierre de Smet, um, who uh, was a, a, a traveler extraordinaire. I mean, hundreds of thousands of miles by foot and horseback um, uh, up and down the Mississippi Valley and into the Northwest, um, engaging with uh, native populations. Um, you have an, other examples, um, uh, Swiss Jesuits uh, or uh, upper German province, which they also get run out of town, really by Bannett Point, um, that include a number of famous names, maybe most famously a guy named Bertrand Villiger, who will rise to great prominence on the East Coast as a provincial, as a, a, a church founder and um, college builder in Philadelphia, um, but will also at a certain point be sent out to uh, California to help with the mission in California and to help out at uh, Santa Clara. Um, uh, but that's a, a large population. They really literally are um, fleeing um, uh, uh, fleeing, uh, you know, uh, with gunfire in the background um, as the Jesuits are kicked out of Switzerland. In Switzerland, uh, in fact, in 1848, the Swiss will pass a constitution that explicitly um, prohibits Jesuits from owning property, and that's a that's a constitutional provision in the Swiss uh, constitution that is not removed until the 1970s, hmm. at roughly the same time as the Swiss give women the right to vote. Um, and the other major group uh, that will come are the Italians, 
and they will be forced to leave Italy uh, uh, in the over the course of the the Italian Wars of Unification. So Italy up to the 19th century was, you know, a set of little principalities. Um, and in the 19th century, you have some revolutionary forces trying to unify it. Um, and two provinces in particular that are forced out um, send over large numbers of people um, to the United States, um, the province of Naples and the province of Turin. And uh, the Turin province is, uh, they will be very engaged in um, uh, the missions to the Native Americans in the Northwest, and then they'll drop down the Pacific coast um, uh, and so work with Santa Clara and uh, St. Ignatius College, or now USF. Um, and then the Neapolitans, um, they do it, there's a, a number of things that their contribution to U.S. Catholicism is very important. Their theology faculty um, uh, moves out of, of uh, Naples and reestablishes itself in, what do you know, rural Maryland and become the core faculty at Woodstock College, which is the, the, uh, the Jesuit School of Theology and really was the premier center for the doing of Catholic theology in the United States, um, really un, un, until the 1960s, early 70s when it was closed. Um, the Neapolitans are there, and then the Neapolitans are also working in the American Southwest, Arizona, um, uh, Nebraska, New Mexico, Colorado, um, Regis in in uh, in Denver comes out of the tradition of those uh, Neapolitans, but they're also French and um, and the Germans themselves. Bismarck kicks the Jesuits out of Germany, um, and uh, for folks that know Canisius, uh, the the German Jesuits are very involved around the Great Lakes region. They also get involved in the ministry uh, missions to Native Americans um, uh, and, and the, the, uh, their closest association is with um, two, uh, two missions that Jesuits are still associated with, the two in South Dakota, Rosebud and um, Red Cloud. No. Um, yes, Red Cloud. Um. Pine Ridge. Pine Ridge. The Red Cloud School at Pine Ridge Reservation. Um. Sorry. So this thing, I, I guess part of it is just it's – it's. Uh, I, th I think this is actually an enormous area of, of that for research of really looking at what was driving these folks and what it meant really as, as refugees. I mean, yeah, well-educated ones and well-connected ones. But um, uh, to come with a, a really deep knowledge of what it meant to be um, politically and religiously persecuted. And in terms even of, you know, um, uh, the, the research that's really burgeoning now into what went on in the Indian missions and in the Indian schools. And uh, all of this stuff is only happening in cooperation with the U.S. government, which has a very explicit desire to suppress um, language and culture. Um, at the same time, a certain amount of, of there's going to be a certain amount of, of differentiation since in, in point of fact, these, these Italian Jesuits, they're not Americans, you know. The, the Anglo-Saxon values are, are not their values and often enough they're engaged with Indian populations that know English better than they do. And all of this um, 
uh, I guess it's it's a it's a similar to my approach to the issue of enslavement as a historian of as precisely as possible to understand um, what's going on in the minds of the participants. And um, this this refugee component seems to me to be a, a fairly significant one. That when the as the as the story is being more and more fully told, um, we'll, we'll have some interesting implications as we try to assess what was going on. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Again, for me, it's like oh, I can make a list of the twenty seven Jesuit colleges and universities in the United States. It's sort of my party tricks. Uh, I can rattle off those names by state, you know. Uh, but to think about like where they came from and that they found it in very different contexts by by different groups but there is that sense of like that americanization that eventually it all just kind of becomes american and kind of lose some mm-hmm. of that that history and i am curious like it, you know from that and i know that one of the themes that you've talked about too is how jesuits then in the especially into the 20th century become very involved in like the social question and big ju- justice issues um and if you can kind of trace any of that involvement uh back to um this like kind of reality as as being persecuted uh and being on the run um so yeah i am interested now to maybe to turn like as these are these are happening and kind of getting established Let's kind of uh, look ahead to see what what comes next for the Jesuits. Yeah. So, um, you know, the 19th century I learned from scratch. The early 20th century uh, is also an area in which I learned an awful lot. Um, And here, I think I would say rather than really teaching me something I'd never heard of, it was more filling out a history the 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 traces of which um, I'd I'd heard talked about by Jesuits, but this engagement with the social question, um, which was so huge, um, well that it was so huge for Jesuits, uh, you know, from World War One to uh, World War Two, um, really um, uh, intrigued me. And what we're talking about in terms of the social question, it was Jesuits becoming increasingly involved in in labor questions. Mm-hmm. And um, the, uh, there are a number of things that are driving this. Um, one is, um, so especially after World War I, you have the emergence of communism as, um, as, a, as a global phenomenon. Um, you have a, a church that sees this communist movement as antithetical to a lot of Catholic values. Um, uh, there's a there's a history both in Europe and the United States of of uh, 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 in, engagement with the issue of labor unions, but really after after w- World War One, you have just this intensified interest in the United States that's encouraged by this concern towards communism that's within the church, but then also within the United States. I mean, general U.S. society is that way. You also have um, the, the Catholic population that the Jesuits are are engaged with. A, a, a good percentage of them are exactly this working class um, uh, demographic uh, that maybe they're attending the schools, maybe not. Maybe they're involved in parishes, maybe not. Maybe um, you know there's a sodality movement that's extremely important that emerges in this period, which is is really one of the 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 the, the biggest access points. Uh, that the Jesuits have to um, uh, lab- laboring work- working class populations. And you have the Jesuits trying to figure out how do we engage this segment of the population? 
how do we, and there's always a concern that working class, they're, uh, they're going to be, working people are going to be uh, stolen away by the communists. So how do, we, how do we keep ourselves engaged with them? And then how do we really address the social problems that are, are frustrating and are fundamentally unjust to this population? Who I actually refer to in the book just it's the easiest way to access um, this is John Ryan, who was a diocesan priest teaching at CUA, who um, writes uh, very compellingly about the social question and applying it to labor issues and taking Catholic social teaching and, um, and uh, prompting a deeper investigation of the American situation. And uh, uh, the, the Jesuits really signed on wholeheartedly to that. Now, it's probably not going to surprise a lot of your listeners that Engaged in the question, you're going to have Jesuits coming at it from two kind of different angles. There's going to be the Jesuits that want to think of this as a highly theoretical problem that should be um, uh, thought its way through with very careful research and and engagement with um, the best theorists and the best data that was out there. And there were others that sort of they wanted to approach the issue from below in engagement and activism. And you're you're. You're going to see this play itself out in the institutions that get founded and in a lot of the uh, – again, I think a lot of people can – will have analogous experiences of this happening in, in the world of Jesuit uh, works. And, and that is um, maybe for too long not making up the – uh, one's mind, which which is really the way to go, and so then an investment of energy and resources gets to be a little diffuse, and then everything sort of falls apart. And you have a few exercises uh, uh, or enterprises that 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 sort of are always they start with great promise, and then they limp around for a while because some key decisions are not made as to what do you really want to do, and what is what really is the mission statement that's going to be implemented here. Nonetheless, it it. It's um, it engages so many Jesuits at so many different levels and and um, propels a lot of activity beyond World War II even and with the encouragement of the Superior General and 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 even the the Pope um, directly to American Jesuits to be engaged in this way it 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 was it was you know I had inklings of it over time but um, the 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 robustness of it um, in the actual history was was really neat to learn about myself. Yeah, and I think in the in the book too, you kind of as you trace these the refugee Jesuits we talked about, kind of going out and then starting a lot of these places, and you could kind of trace. Okay, this university came here, that kind of brick and mortar era that you had alluded to earlier, and then this like following century, a lot of those institutions are set up already. They kind of built out, uh, um, and then it becomes so. Yeah, what are either from those places, from like the established parish or place in the city where you've been been now for decades. And, and decades, what are you going to do from there? And so in, in addition to some of that, like the social research and involvement there, you, you also talk about like the renewal of like, Ignatian spirituality and starting to offer retreats, uh, especially and the, the kind of really a renewal in that and opening that to a broader audience is something that kind of characterized the society's right. work in this era. And that, I mean, there's, there's, there was something that was totally new to me that how much the Jesuit engagement with the social question and Catholic social teaching was at the um, inspiration of the retreat movement. Hmm. How so? Well, in that um, who the the way the retreat movement is starting um, uh, 
and specifically in New York City and in connection with Fordham University, it, it has to do with bringing working class and entrepreneurs who are Catholic together to pray together and learn about Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's, it's out of this that sort of a, a, a first real retreat movement is, is born. Absolutely, yeah. It's an it's a it's an intersection that um, I think most most of us would simply not anticipate. Sure. One of the, the questions too you look at as the 20th century moves is that you have this peak of American Jesuits kind of like mid 20th century. The way I think you have in a lot of places, a lot of Catholic places, a kind of peak of number of clergy. And where I used to work in a pretty small diocese population wise, you know, I had like 130 churches at some point, large mm-hmm. part because like we haven't more, too many priests to know what to do with. So we'll build another church here and, mm-hmm. and for our priests to be there. Uh, and so you had this, this big spike uh, in Jesuit numbers and then uh, starting to see that decline. So curious about the, like those, what do we have a sense of what led to the the rise in, around kind of mid twentieth century and number of Jesuits and those across the board entering religious life, and then we start to see a decline. Do we what do we know about that? Yeah, uh, not much. Um, I, I I think that would be that's a um, it's it's a question that's that's um, not been well studied and that we don't really have a good answer for. Um, I think. Along the lines of those statistics, one of the things that interested me most is, um, and maybe this doesn't come up in the book, but looking at what's happening in other places around the world, and that um, so the the U.S. the U.S. uh, the declining numbers, so separations. So there are two factors: uh, separation from the society of men who are already Jesuits, and then decreasing novitiate sizes, and uh, this it's a phenomenon that really becomes um, uh, you, you you feel it in the society to the best I can reconstruct it in the late '60s and early '70s. Um, there are other parts of the world in which it it happens much earlier, already by the late uh, '50s and '60s. So a lot of um, quick explanations: oh, it has to do with the '60s, or oh, it has to do with Vatican II, or oh. Th- um, uh, it doesn't quite work when one is looking at it globally. Will it shape and color or did it shape and color what was going on in the U.S.? For sure, right? I mean, um, uh, uh, that's the way people explain it and express it. And to a certain extent, you've got to take them at their word as they're explaining why they're, they're leaving. But looked at globally, some of this uh, stuff is happening before the quote-unquote 60s and before Vatican II. Um, so... Uh, is it is it since it is it um, uh, a short and a long term reaction to the some of the things coming out of of uh, World War Two? Are there are there things afoot that um, um, you know uh, already then that are shaping then what we think of as the '60s or the early '70s, both in the church and outside? But to be honest, I've I have yet to find a, a good analysis of of why the numbers surged as they seemed to do um, after the war, and then really why did they decline um, so precipitously um, in the 70s. Hmm. So kind of as that is happening, those demographic shifts, you also write about you know, emergence of you know, Jesuits in all kinds of different fields, uh, kind of 
you know, pioneers in interreligious dialogue, um, in sciences beyond kind of theology and philosophy, but, but moving forward. And, and then also in like mass media to kind of developing in the, the 20th century too. We think of America Magazine has been around a long time and, and radio outreach and, and all kinds of other things. So yeah, what other, some of the, the trends that we were kind of seeing in the, even moving toward like the second half of the, the 20th century, closer to the, the present day, um, in terms of some of the, uh, the apostolic activity, it kind of is, uh, what are like the big movements you, you noticed? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think, let me set up, I think that the, the, the challenge in that last quarter of the 20th century that affects us even to the present moment is uh, to, how are the, these very practical changes going to be incorporated or were they incorporated in uh, decision-making, right? And, and it really, there's kind of a fork in the road and it's, if you have 50% fewer men, are you going to do what you've been doing just at, with, at half the quantity? Or are you going to imagine, well, okay, with half the people, then we have to think about the whole project a little bit differently. And um, I mean, that's a, I think a, that's a, a driving tension behind a lot of the developments that one would identify. I mean, the, the rising importance of the national offices um, where we're sitting right now, it's, it, it would, I would, as I understand it and, and look at it, um, and to the extent that this gets contemporary, I'm, I'm out of my wheelhouse as a historian, right? I want to make that clear. But that um, uh, I think there, these are, these drive, these, both of these impulses are, are driving what's got done. And that is, um, uh, we are going to, we can only do 50% of what we did because we only have 50% of the people. But with 50% of the people, there's a different way of going about what we want to do and a different th way of thinking about what we can do. Um, and so the, I would say, you know, working at, at, um, at a university, um, uh, it's, it's not as simple as we're doing less in proportion to how many fewer there are of us. Mm -hmm. In fact, I mean, I, I think maybe there that it's, that's clearly not the case. Um, there's a way of Jesuit engagement with the life of the university that's, um, that's vigorous in a way that it wasn't vigorous in the 1970s or 60s when there were um, three and four times as many Jesuits on campus. It's, it's a way of, of understanding how what's most important to Jesuit um, Jesuits in education is communicated more effectively and responsibilities are shared more broadly um, with the full range of folks that we're working with and, and working for and have in the classroom and all that. Um, uh, and so there's, there's, there's something that, that's a way both to, to say look at places where we always have been, but the work is just very different now than it was 50 years ago. It's also a way of looking at sort of educational project. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna favor in this moment educational projects just because it's what I'm engaged with, mm -hmm. um, right? But you look at um, uh, uh, Steve Katsuris and the Arupe schools, um, which is a way of, of, of yes, being connected to, to higher ed and reimagining ways of engaging. Well, 
actually a population not unlike the population we were engaging in the 1850s, which is those who otherwise would not have an education. Um, uh, the same is true of the Cristo Rey program. And notice, notice, how, notice how that program has changed um, uh, ha, or has developed as well. It, not only is it, is it something that, um, uh, okay, so it, it, there's a Jesuit inspiration, um, but it's a, a collaborative ministry um, uh, beyond Jesuits to uh, lay colleagues, but then also to segments of the church that have no direct connection with the, the Jesuits, other religious congregations, other communities that want to have that kind of school. Now, as soon as I say that's that's a a, a new way of thinking through things, a, a strategic way of thinking about declining numbers rather than a tactical uh, retreat or a tactical way of thinking about it, um, I say to myself, well, you know what? I mean, two or three Jesuits winding up in um, Cincinnati and taking over um, the the school that was founded by the bishop and um, and starting to use the tools at their disposal with a faculty of which. At, certainly in those early years, they were a minority and connecting with uh, donors and other interested parties and connecting with the church um, in, in helpful and creative ways. Well, maybe, I mean, it's the same imagination, I, I'd almost want to say, that's mm-hmm. driving, driving both of those things, even if it's easy enough to, you know, uh, look at Cincinnati in, in, in the 19th century and, and look at Chicago in the 21st century and, and say, oh, look at all the ways that they're different. Um, maybe there's, there's an there's a infrastructure of, of the Jesuit imagination that is equally operative. Yeah, and I, that is an interesting thing to think about. Like, how do you approach that? Is it the kind of, oh, no, like we had it. It was so good back then in the old days. You know, there's always that temptation. It was, it was so good then. And now we've we've lost so much and we're going to have to close things and we're going to have to stop doing stuff that we've done. Or you could say, like, the spirit is moving and the spirit has moved in these t- times in history that we're not all that proud of. And spirit has moved, kept the church going for a long time and will work in other creative ways that we can't even imagine. So I, I love the way you kind of can you know, think about that and contextualize that, but trying to, again, responding to the signs of the times, you know, seeing a, across um, across eras, doing that in different ways. And that is, I guess, maybe one last question I can ask you is at the end of the, the book, you kind of outlined some, you're kind of like general things, like kind of doing the survey, looking back, are there things that we can see uh, as trends across these these centuries? And so what, what are maybe one or two of them that you think like, okay, again, very different contexts, um, different histories, and you can't just say they're exactly the same, but what are some of the, the movements or general trends that you think kind of characterize Jesuits in the, in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, one that um, I w- – it may even be the one that I lead with at, at the in that list at the end. I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, it's, it's, it's certainly one that I am able to formulate now that I would not have been able to formulate 10 years ago. And that has to do with Jesuits are committed to keeping the church engaged with the mainstream of American society, right? And um, – and, when I when I talk about that in the introduction and the conclusion, I contrast it with um, a uh, a city on a hill model of uh, of being you know potentially Catholic in America, you know isolated, homogenous, um, and you know in which all kinds of good things can happen. And I use by way of concrete sort of an Amish model, right? That they're, they they um, uh, in the in a, by a, a 
establishing themselves as, as as the city on the hill or as as a as a isolated community um, with their with their life and perception of the world they they flourish um, and people talk about that um, in for contemporary Catholicism because Catholicism thinks of the way that it's um, its demographics are eroding in certain ways or its place in society and dealing with a society small less of course that's more and more hostile to it. Um, but really, the Jesuits consistently have been on the side of keeping the church linked to the mainstream, and that was it. Was probably ran a little bit against their instincts um, in colonial Maryland, um, uh, but they ran with that program in the 19th century. You know, when you see the the, the great battles um, in Europe of Catholicism versus liberalism, um, you don't really see that reflected in in you know you have the Pope as prisoner in the Vatican. You don't really see that working its way into the way American uh, Jesuits did their work with Americans. It's always about keeping Catholicism in a vigorous engagement with the American society around them, with the with the hope that. Um, the community itself can thrive and it can contribute something substantial to American society. So that that mainstreaming instinct ha- is something that it's a thread throughout the whole story. And I, I think it's very much uh, as I think about ways Jesuits imagine, um, you know, the next decades. It's it, the idea of 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 pulling pulling their corner of Catholicism into an American ghetto. That's just not on the. Mm. On the on the table yeah. for us. One other thread that I think is similarly connected you talk about too is uh, the earliest Jesuits arriving, working, wanting to work with indigenous communities. Also, the pull to work with the settlers who are already churched, right? But kind of being in those places, both with those who are learning about the faith for the first time and maybe didn't grow up with it, and then others who are who are like already kind of hardcore and and in it and and are in serving those kind of pastoral sacramental needs. But seeing that now too, and I even think like whether it's a Jesuit university or high school or some other ministry, even what we're doing in our uh, like communications ministry is like you're trying to reach people for whom maybe they're right at the edge of the church or kind of falling away and the Jesuits are their link. And then other things for those who are like super in it already. And um, so there is like those different ways of like the frontiers, I think, look different now, but kind of trying to be in all of those different places, uh, meeting needs and in and, and different ways, but but being there um, in those places. I You know, I might that um that particular tension you know working with the settler or uh, the already churched and or evangelizing working with the unchurched i i think of that as actually a, a kind of good way to th- to think of our work in the in the universities it it describes a bit of the transition over the last 75 years 75 years ago to teach in a jesuit college was to to be engaged with the churched and now it's to be engaged with the unchurched. And and when a Jesuit says, um, you know, I was at a province congregation re- recently and, and someone said, well, th- this is where the Catholics are moving. And so this is where we should go. And I'm thinking, hmm, that that's not really how we've ever thought about things, is it? <laughs> I mean, we we do follow that, but it's never, it's never self-evident that that's 
what we should be doing because the opposite argument or the opposite model is every bit as much a part of our history. Hmm. Oh, are there no Catholics over there? Then boom, that's where right. we should that's where we should be heading. Hmm. For 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 everybody's sake, right? It enriches the church right. as much as it enriches anybody. Sure. Well, Father David Collins, thank you so much for this extra long two-part episode. Um, for my concise history. From your concise history <laughs> and a, right, and a, a, a verbose podcast. Um, but no, it was really interesting. Well, hopefully folks will get a copy of the book, which I, again, really, I loved and was able to read in just the course of a couple of days. So it's it's not overwhelming or intimidating. You just, I think, write really clearly and, and um, accessibly. And uh, yeah, so thank you again for that. And congratulations on uh, its publishing. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a real treat. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Mm-hmm.